Hey everyone, I'm so happy you joined me here today for this week's episode of Talk Racing to Me with Naomi Tucker. That's me, your host, and it's episode eight already. It has been quite the ride. And this week's guest is Janine Edwards, who I'm so excited to have a chat with. Uh, I recorded this interview last week and it's been quite a dynamic time. I hope everyone is staying safe and looking out for each other. Other content on the In The Money Media Network that you should absolutely check out via Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe as well. We have a Woodbine preview for opening day on Saturday. DRF's Tommy Masses and Ron Gerking are on the show. The Stronach 5 is back. Best bet in racing. It starts at Laurel Park with race 7 and also features race 8 from my home track. And it includes three turf races for the grass lovers amongst us. Tom Amos is on JK Plus One and boy does he have some funny anecdotes. Never a dull moment on JK's show. And even if you just tune in for his intro, you're already going to be entertained. We've had three great days of racing at Laurel Park so far. It's been full of action, large fields and plenty of long shot winners. 45 to 1 victors has not been an exception. But let's get to today's incredible guest. She retired in 2018 after 22 years as a sports reporter for ESPN covering horse racing, college football, and college basketball. Most horse racing insiders will also know her as the face of the annual Eclipse Awards. She's been awarded with a few accolades herself, actually. Number one national sports sportscaster by Sports Illustrated, in addition to being awarded best broadcaster in horse racing. Let's start in the present with Janine Edwards. Janine where are you currently and what have you been up to? Well, I retired from doing television for ESPN a little over two years ago. And um, my husband and I have moved a few times in the last um, three years uh, for his work. He's a football coach. So we are just now getting settled into our new home here in the Tampa area. And so we've been doing some work on the house and we have three dogs. Um, And before the coronavirus hit, I was traveling to New Jersey to visit my mom and to um, help out with her care. She's 92. So now that the travel has been shut down and she's in a, a facility and we're not allowed to visit, I can't go there. So I've been spending time here in Tampa with the dogs and with Glenn, my husband, and uh, just doing some work on our house. I guess it's nice to catch up on some housework, but have you been able to still stay in touch with your mother via sort of the digital means nowadays? Yes, yes. Actually, uh, my mom has an Alexa device that uh, luckily is one of the ones with the screen on it, the video. So we have been able to speak with her over that and we can see her, she can see us, uh, or we talk with her on the phone. So I talk to her just about every day and I have three siblings and they call her almost every day as well. 
So we're doing the best we can to stay connected, you know, but it's hard when you can't visit. Oh, it must be. Well, you have a very modern mother having an Alexa with a screen. I can't remember oh, my <laughs> grandmother having one of those. I <laughs> know, uh, it's funny. I mean, the technology nowadays, I mean, just think about 10 years ago, we wouldn't have had, you know, Zoom or any of these things that have enabled a lot of people to continue working and meeting. And my husband uses it every day for meetings with the football players and the staff. Um, and that's how a lot of people are sort of um, keeping keeping their work situations going. Um, and thankfully, we're in a situation where we can do that. Um, but yeah, my mom doesn't have a computer. She does not text. She doesn't have a smartphone. But thankfully, she has the Alexa, and that has been um, a blessing right now. Oh, that has been a blessing indeed. Do you know if college football is making a return anytime soon? Cause I know that your husband works for, tell me if I'm wrong here, the South Florida Bulls. Correct. Yes. He is the defensive coordinator for South Florida. Um, it looks like we're keeping our fingers crossed, uh, barring any major setbacks or health disasters. Um, it looks like we will have a football season. Now we may be playing without fans or we may be playing in stadiums that are half empty uh, for social distancing guidelines and all that. But um, I think we as Americans, we just crave our sports content And we, we crave having events to go to or, or at least just watch on television. And so um, we're very, very hopeful. It looks like uh, things will be ramping back up, at least starting in June for a lot of the teams. And uh, I know my husband's team, the players, are all back on campus and they've all been tested for the coronavirus. Uh, we don't know the results yet. They were just tested yesterday. So... But things are moving along, thankfully. Well, let's hope they get good news. Yes. Before the coronavirus hit, did you, by any chance, miss the hustle and buzzle, bustle of live television? Because sort of catching up on what you've done, you looked like you were very busy most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it's a fairly fast-paced lifestyle, um, doing what I was doing, you know, um, traveling, flying almost every week and covering various sports, mainly college football and college basketball. Um, but yeah, I, I, yes and no to missing it. I do miss covering the big events and a lot of my colleagues and people that I worked with and a lot of the players or coaches or, you know, administrative staff that I would see at the various places. You miss all those connections, but I don't miss the traveling and it, it is a grind. And because I had some family um, obligations and family issues with elderly parents and um, moving quite a bit for Glenn's job, it just became obvious to me that it was time to step away and just be able to be around to take care of things that needed to be taken care of and also spend quality time with my family. So the answer to answer your question in a long, long winded way, I would say, 
yes, I do miss it, but I don't miss the traveling and being gone so much. Well, I can imagine that at some point in your life, family takes precedent when it comes to, especially if you have elderly parents, it's you don't want to get to the point that they might pass away and you wouldn't have been able to spend as much time with them. Exactly. Coming back to the sports that you were covering, you were a senior sideline reporter for ESPN, as you mentioned, covering college football, college basketball, very popular sports in the United States. How did that come about? Were you always interested in both sports? Now, I'm kind of skipping the part about horse racing here. We're going to get back to that as well. I'm sure. Yes. Yes. Um, You know, it was something where I had been working for ESPN as their horse racing reporter. And um, it it became more of a fuller time job to me. And if I was going to be able to support myself, I needed to do something the rest of the time to sort of fill out my schedule. And I had talked to some of the senior management at ESPN and asked about doing some other assignments, some other sports, and they were very receptive. Um, And so initially it was college football that they put me on and um, I worked you know, some of the smaller games, some of the lesser games, uh, games on ESPNU or ESPN2. Um, and it's a good thing because I'm sure some of those early performances are cringeworthy. In fact, I know they are. Uh, it was a learning curve, not only learning to cover the sport um, from an X's and O's standpoint, and also getting to know a lot of the teams and players and coaches, but just learning where to be during a game and the best best vantage points and logistics and how to cover two teams at once when they're sort of spread apart on opposite sides of the field. And so it was a lot of trial and error for me. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, but over the next few years, I sort of figured things out and I talked to some other sideline reporters. They helped me out. They gave me some good tips, some good advice. There were, you know, so many that were so helpful and so kind. And it it was, it, it got to the point where it was so much fun. And I remember one of the senior managers at ESPN saying to me, I want you one day to become as comfortable and as confident covering college football as you are covering horse racing. He said, I've seen you on horse racing and you walk around like you own the place. (laughs) And I just thought that was, I thought that was such an interesting compliment. And I was like, wow. And I thought, I don't know if I'll ever get to that point covering college football, but it was nice of him to say that. And it, it kind of gave me something to shoot for. And it, it kind of helped me to figure out that, yes, I can do this. And if I tell myself I have the confidence to do it, Maybe I'll be able to fool myself long enough to do it properly. And um, he just he just gave me some some good advice and some good ammunition that I was able to incorporate. And I'm very thankful to him for that. Do you feel like you ever reached that level of confidence that you had with horse racing later on in college football and college basketball? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know that I ever had the exact same comfort level only because I had spent so many years covering horse racing. Um, but yeah, I did get pretty comfortable. Um, it took, you know, it took several years, but you do develop a rapport 
with the teams and with the um, administrative staff and with the coaching staff and the players, obviously there's a lot of turnover because they graduate and move on or whatever. But yeah, it, it did get to the point for me where I was very comfortable and I really then was able to enjoy it and enjoy covering the games, not just as a reporter, but as a fan of the sport and really appreciated the sport. And in those earlier years, when you just started covering those two sports, how did you prepare yourself? Did you read up on the subject? Now, this is also a personal question because I love a lot of different sports that are popular here in the US, but I haven't been as exposed to them coming from a European background where college football, that's really not a thing. Or not really, not as much. So, you know, very interested to hear where you got your knowledge from and how you went about it. Well, it was a lot of reading and a lot of studying um, and a lot of watching of other games. And what we would do every week is we would get a packet, um, sometimes mailed to us in paper, hard copy form, Uh, at FedEx, or sometimes it would come digitally uh, in email, but it would be the press clippings for that team. And sometimes it was a thousand pages and different bios of players and coaches and different little uh, interesting stories or, you know, facts or features that had been done on the team. They send you a huge packet of stuff that you have to sift through And you would usually, we would usually get those by like maybe Tuesday of that week. And um, then we would have meetings, uh, conference call meetings on over the phone with the coaching staff, maybe some players with our broadcast crew, where we could get a lot of other background information that we needed to know for the telecast. And so it was a good, I would say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it was a good four days of studying. And then as a reporter, uh, also, I'd be making phone calls and trying to get more information on any stories that I wanted to cover or unearth any interesting little tidbits that I could use. So it was a good four days of preparation for each football game. Um, Not as much for basketball. Um basketball is a much quicker sport, uh, shorter duration of of game, you know, usually two hours. And you don't get as much time during the game telecast to interject stories. So the preparation would not be as heavy um, as it would be for football. Football is just very laborious to cover uh, for, for television basketball not quite as much so a lot of the basketball coverage was just your eyes and your ears during the game and trying to react what was going on and trying to um, bring the viewers down to the floor to see what you were seeing and hearing and what the coaches may be saying to the players and things like that so that was a bigger learning curve for me covering basketball because I really had no interest in it (laughs) growing up so I had to kind of learn that sport from you know, from nothing, from, from scratch, which was pretty bad, I must admit. Um, but at least I had a little bit of experience from the football side then to help me make that transition as well. You just uh, highlighted that you might, you know, 
put in what the coaches were saying to their players, are they kind of receptive of you being near and listening in? I'm thinking the majority of trainers and owners do not want me to stand next to them when they're giving instructions to their jockey and me to relay it across the track and be like, look, this is what I just heard. (laughs) Right, exactly. No, and you're 100% right because usually no usually the and i know from my years of covering racing that uh, any instructions any instructions that are going to be unusual or interesting or top secret between the trainer and the jockey are probably going to happen before they get to the paddock they're probably going to talk about it the morning of the race in private or whatever but if there are last minute instructions they usually don't want anybody overhearing them And it's the same with other sports, with football and basketball. And so it depends on the coaching staff. It depends on the guys and how open they might be. Um, Some are a lot more secretive and a lot more protective than others. And some teams would be very restrictive and limiting as to letting a sideline reporter anywhere near their benches during a football game or their benches during a basketball game like when they have a timeout and a huddle some teams would allow you to kind of eavesdrop in the huddle other teams would say no way we don't want you within 20 feet of this thing so it just depended on the team and the coaches as to how close you could get and how much information they'd be willing to share was that tricky sort of a learning curve to see which teams would allow you to be and where because that sounds like quite sort of an intimidating environment um it you know it could be um I remember when I was switched from covering SEC basketball to ACC basketball um which I thoroughly enjoyed because I lived in Maryland at the time and um you know, the ACC has so many great teams in basketball. I mean, you've got Duke and North Carolina and Clemson and Florida State and Syracuse and a lot of really good powerhouse basketball schools. Um, And, you know, I remember covering my first Duke and North Carolina games and it's like, don't expect to get anywhere near their huddles. They are not going to share anything with you. They don't want you anywhere near them. And so then it became very challenging to come up with some interesting observations during those games, because if you weren't close enough to hear what was being said, then you as a reporter really wouldn't have a whole lot to offer. So you really had to figure out ways to try and, you know, observe things with your eyes or uh, maybe just talk to some of the coaching staff in the morning before the game at shoot around and just kind of piece together as much as you can to give the viewers at home. It's all about giving the viewers at home something interesting to listen to or look for or watch for that they wouldn't know themselves, that they wouldn't have heard themselves or seen themselves. So when my bosses said to me, you're the eyes and ears there at that game for the viewers, that was something that always stuck with me is, you know, approach my job here as I'm the eyes and ears for the viewers what would I hear and see that would be interesting to them that they can't figure out on their own I think that's a great tip for the majority of sport casters and I always try to do something similar myself try to add something that the people listening and watching 
might not know and hence I'm actually adding value to their life and you just yes (laughs) yes great great that's great to do that because that's what it's all about especially in your job what you're doing now in horse racing think about all the people watching from different venues remotely they're watching they're looking to wager money on this race and you're there as the only person that they can hear from and you're on the ground and can see something that they most likely have not been able to see so you're 100 percent right about that exactly especially when you're in the paddock and you get a good close-up look of the horses because they're not there you actually are right there in the flesh in the thick of things and can relay that to them right when you just explained how sort of the schedule worked with college football that you had about four days to prepare you were talking before about quite a rigorous travel schedule Mm -hmm. I'm not as familiar with how the timelines are when it comes to these different um, conferences and different divisions what was your normal working month like well we would get our assignment for our games usually on a Sunday afternoon uh, because as the as the football season unfolds the network will pick the teams, the matchups that they want in the various television windows in the various time slots. So you would get you once they would pick which game was going in which time slot, then we as the broadcast crew would then get our assignment. So usually Sunday afternoon to Sunday evening, we'd get our assignment. And then the producer would get a hold of the schools and get them to send all that information that I was telling you about. Those packets of info would be FedEx to us or emailed. And then we have conference calls on Wednesday with both teams. And then Thursday morning, we fly to the game site. Friday, we would have more in-person meetings with the teams on site. And we would have a production meeting with our TV crew usually that night in the hotel. And then Saturday we would do the game. And if it was an early game, you could maybe fly home Saturday night, but more than likely 90% of the time you were flying home on Sunday. That sounds like quite a rigorous schedule indeed. You just said that the teams, there's quite frequent meetings with the teams, uh, a conference call as well as in-person meetings. Mm-hmm. How are they involved in the reporting side? And, and that sounds like a great thing to really have that much FaceTime. I don't think that we have that in horse racing. I don't no. see myself sitting down with the jockeys and trainers before. It'd be great. I'd love that. Yes. Well, you know what I will say is, most people in horse racing are very approachable and you know it's just a wonderful sport to be involved with as a member of the media because most of them are very amenable to you coming to their barn and asking them about different horses or calling them on the phone or whatever that was you know that was just my experience and they don't have staffs of people uh you know, PR assistants or whatever, working for them to kind of filter out all the media. Um, But with teams, there are PR people. And there are people that put out all the game notes and that 
filter, you know, can filter some of the questions and some of the information that's going out to the media. And that's their job to take the pressure off the coaching staff. But you're right. I mean, as the broadcast crew, you were given more time and more accessibility than just the general media, the local papers or what, what have you. And they were not getting those face-to-face meetings that we were, and they were not getting the conference calls. We were only getting that because we were the crew televising the game. And that's part of the TV contract that networks negotiate with teams when they say, you know, we're going to pay you whatever it is, $10 million to broadcast these games. And in return, one of the stipulations is that the teams have to give access to the broadcast crews and they have to have sort of exclusive meetings or conference calls with them. So that's all negotiated as part of the television contract. Um, And it does help us do our job better because we gain a lot of insight and a lot of great useful information and just a lot of ways to make the television broadcast that much better, in my opinion. I wasn't aware of that being part of the country. That's very interesting. And I think you're completely right about how the majority of people in the horse racing industry are incredibly welcoming. I've always been, yes, I've always felt incredibly welcome going to the barns, interviewing the trainers. So you are right. If you put in the time, you can absolutely talk with these people before. And I was more talking about some kind of general meeting with everyone involved. That would be a great thing. Conference or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. that You don't really usually see that unless it's after the Kentucky Derby or the Breeders' Cup races or something, right? Yeah, the Dubai World Cup week, they've got them every morning, which is phenomenal. You always have something interesting to to catch up on there, which, you know, great credit to the team there. I I enjoy that. And I think that's a great way of showcasing our sport. Now, definitely. During those meetings or even sit down interviews, you must have experienced some of the highs and lows of both of these sports. Was there an interview that you feel will always stay with you or that really meant something to you? Mm. Wow. Well, there's, gosh, there's so many. I mean, there's so many like in horse racing, um, just some really meaningful, touching moments. Um, I'll never forget when Zenyatta won the Breeders' Cup Classic out at Santa Anita and how thrilling that was. We were televising it uh, for ESPN at the time. And, you know, and then her Breeders' Cup Classic at Churchill in 2010, when she lost by a nose to blame, I was actually sitting in the owner's box with Ann and Jerry Moss, her owners, and just the sheer um, sadness on their faces to see their great mare uh, lose. And then I felt terrible having to interview them. You know, you kind of want to give these people their space and let them have their moment, but uh, they were very gracious as always. And um, just very, uh, very kind in defeat and giving all the, uh, all the congrats to blame and his connections. But Things like that really stand out. And then, of course, covering the Barbaro story, that was something that was just probably one of the toughest assignments I've ever had, was covering that whole thing from start to finish. 
till the day that they had to put him down. And then just some great football moments for sure. Um, I spent a lot of time covering Clemson football and um, Ohio State and Michigan and, you know, Duke and North Carolina basketball. There, there are a lot of too many to mention, uh, but it was an honor. And really, I was very blessed to have had the opportunity to uh, work in a in a field that was so exciting and uh, also just, you know, very thrilling, thrilling to be around. And it was really just a highlight to be able to cover those events. You've also received many accolades, accolades excuse me, as a sportscaster. I do think that one of them was also based on you reporting the story of Barbaro. Um, you've received best broadcaster in horse racing 2004 and number one broadcaster on television in 2007. That's just to name a few. What does that mean to you to be recognized in a field, in a field such as horse racing that obviously is so close to your heart? Oh boy. It's, um, it's a little, it's, it's very, very nice. It's very complimentary. It's a little embarrassing because I know how many talented people there are doing the exact same thing. And, um, yeah, it's, it just feels weird to be honest. I mean, it's always nice to be recognized and very humbling at the same time. Um, but just one of many thousands who do a great job covering the sport on a daily basis and maybe never get recognized like that. So I was very appreciative of that and, and very humbled by it. On that note, sort of diverting back into the horse racing part of your career and your life, you have got quite a resume when it comes to the thoroughbred racing industry. You've galloped horses, you've trained horses before indeed getting into the broadcasting side. How did you get going in horse racing? I do think we all have this story that we say, this was the moment I got in and I fell in love and I was going to work in it and I wasn't getting out of it. And is that, that's probably how you came to be with horse racing too, I'm guessing. I mean, I don't know, but I think a lot of women, especially, we have this moment where we just fall in love with horses and we happen to be exposed to racing in some way, shape or form. And we decide that this is just the most thrilling, most beautiful thing on earth is to watch these powerful animals. Um, so for me, because I'm a little older than you, um, it was, it was the triple crown of affirmed and Steve Cawthon. And I remember just watching that and thinking, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. You've got this kid, this jockey, he's only 16 and this amazing horse. And I fell in love with Alidar too. I think I liked Alidar a little better than affirmed, but I just thought he was so beautiful. So just fell in love with these horses. And then it was like, I was obsessed with it. I was constantly cutting out articles from the newspaper and putting them in a scrapbook. And I have pictures of all kinds of racehorses from the seventies in my scrapbook. And I would draw them and I would talk about them at school. And it was really just an obsession. And then when I was in high school, I just kept bugging. My parents wanted to go to the track, wanted to go to the track. And we lived in New Jersey, but was not that far from Belmont Park, you know, just over the bridge. And so my mom's uncle lived near Belmont Park and 
I talked my parents into letting me be a hot walker for the summer when I was in high school and stay with my mom's uncle and work there walking hots for Leroy Jolly in the summer. And Leroy Jolly had just won the Derby that year with Genuine Risk. So it was a very special time and it was a very exciting time to be in the Jolly Barn. And uh, that that really hooked me then. Then I was really, really hooked. I thought it was just so amazing that I was around these fascinating, gorgeous animals um, and just a lifelong love of the animals and the sport began then. And I still have it today. How old were you when you started hot walking? 16. 16. Yeah. So it was fun. I did that two summers. And then um, I went to Ocala. And when I got out of high school, I decided I wanted to ride. I wanted to gallop horses, whatever I could do. And um, started, you know, galloping horses and breaking yearlings on Fred Hooper's farm in Ocala. And um, worked for him on and off for several years, actually galloped horses for Eddie Pleza when he was training for Mr. Hooper. And then Mr. Hooper actually gave me a small string of horses to train when I started training. Um, and that was at Tampa Bay Downs, which is ironic since now I'm living in Tampa. So yeah, it's funny how it all comes back around eventually. <laughs> yeah, full circle indeed. Yeah. yeah, but it was it was neat. It was really neat. And I was given a lot of opportunities and I'm very grateful for the experience and and just the time that I had um, on the racetrack and meeting a lot of wonderful people. When was it that you started training in your own right? Oh, gosh. Okay. I want to say ooh, 1989, maybe. I only trained for like maybe three years. Um, I found it very difficult to make a living at um, if you don't have enough horses and enough owners behind you and you have a couple horses that get hurt or, you know, if you don't have the replacements, it's very, very hard to keep it going. And that was sort of what I experienced, um, was that I just didn't have the ammunition, you know, to replace any horses that maybe had gotten claimed or gotten hurt or whatever. So... I gave it up after a couple of years, two and a half, three years. And um, that was when I moved to Maryland and then ended up just because I had nothing else to do and didn't know what I wanted to be now for my second career, ended up doing what you're doing now. <laughs> which is pretty neat. Well, I'm hoping that I have even half the success that you've had in your career. Oh, I think wow. that would be brilliant. Wow. Well, I'm sure you're well on your way. I'm sure you are um, doing a fabulous job. And it, it is a wonderful place uh, to work. So many, just so many warm, welcoming, um, truly talented people work there at the Maryland Jockey Club. And, you know, I miss my time there. And uh, other than last year, I would go back, you know, each year for the Preakness and just to reconnect with all my old friends there. And it's and how neat for you that you are not just working at really great racetracks and working there for the Stronic Group and working for Maryland Jockey Club. But you get to you get to host a Triple Crown event, which is pretty cool. 
you know, there's only three tracks in the country that can say that they do that. And you work at one of them, which is really neat. I know I'm not underestimating the significance of that. I'm still so much looking forward to the Preakness Stakes. And you're very right. I couldn't have put it better myself. Everyone at the Maryland Jockey Club and as well as all the horsemen in Maryland at Laurel Park, everyone is incredibly talented and they've been so welcoming. I've really, really loved my time here so far. Unfortunately, a little bit cut short due to the pandemic. But uh, Um, how terrible. I feel so bad for you because it's like you can't get in a rhythm and you you know, you want things to start back up again and it sounds like they are and just, you know, it's gonna happen now, right? I mean, for you. So I'm really happy that uh that it looks like things are gonna slowly get start getting back to normal there. Yeah, by the time I'll be publishing this podcast, we would have already had three days of racing under our belt again. So yeah, fingers crossed it should all go well. I'm really excited to get going. And I was trying to think about how long I'd actually had been on the air at at the at Laurel Park with the Maryland Joker. I think it's only been a month and a half before we got shut down. So I was like, oh, well. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that's really hard. That's a shame. It will be great to get back again. But getting back to your career when you were training was that your hope and your hope and dream back then was that your ultimate goal to be able to train or did you always think you just wanted to be a part of the industry in any shape or form initially yes I just wanted to be part of the industry and I was very happy uh, galloping horses and I galloped for a few years for Mark Cassie um, and those were some really fun times and he had so many nice horses and I loved working for him. He was just wonderful. Um, so I loved being a part of that. When the opportunity came along to take a small string of horses for Mr. Hooper to Tampa Bay Downs, I kind of came from out of the blue and I couldn't turn it down really. So I just thought, wow, this is amazing. I was, I forget how old I even was at the time. I guess I was like 25, um, 23, something like that. So I was fairly young and uh, it was neat. It was a neat experience and I I just loved the sport and wanted to be a part of it in in any way. And um, I was very fortunate to be able to do it at places like Belmont and Saratoga and um, just learn from some of the best people in the sport. Well, I find myself echoing your sentiment there. I just wanted to be a part of the horse racing industry and I wasn't entirely certain in what form myself at the time when I started, I wanted to be a jockey. Well, <laughs> that didn't work out. <laughs> so. uh, well, me too. I'm right there with you. <laughs> Well, that's that's everyone's dream, right? You're galloping horses and you think, wow, I want to do this in the afternoon as well. Yes, yes. And I did ride in a few races at Belmont and Aqueduct. I did, but I was, you know, I'm very tall and the weight was an issue and um, it just, yeah, it wasn't going to work out, but I tried it and I can, I can say I tried it, but uh, I was an abject failure at it. So (laughs) did you ever win any? I moved. No, I didn't. No. Well, at least you tried. Yeah. <laughs> I was exactly. going to ask you about um, your career as a jockey because I'd been told by a couple of people that you did indeed ride, even if it was only a few races. Where did you ride at? 
at um, Aqueduct and Belmont. Not bad tracks to ride up. I know, I know. A great, great jockey colony too. You know, I, I, I can remember breezing horses with you know guys like Angel Cordero Jr. and had some really good riders around me on a regular basis that that I would work horses with, and I learned from some really talented people. So that was pretty neat. Which of the jockeys did you look up to most? Did you use any of them as an example of how you wanted to look on a horse? Ooh, boy. Um, well, probably, I mean, Angel Cordero was always one of the best. And um, there was, you know, guys in New York like um, Jeffrey Fell. He rode there for several years. I always thought he was a really good rider. Uh, so, so many. I mean, Steve Cawthon, of course, was the one that I followed since the time I was 12 years old. So I think he's the one that I, in my, in my fantasies and my dreams as a child, you know, I was thinking, oh, I want to ride and look like Steve Cawthon on a horse. Um, but yeah, that was, that was pretty neat. I'd say a lot of us would have loved to look like him on a horse. So yeah. not a bad example to exactly. use. Yeah, right. Getting back to you being an in-host analyst at Pimlico and Laurel Park in Maryland, because I'm assuming that's where you did the majority of your job, right? Or was it where you based at Laurel Park like I am? It was it was both. Um, it was Pimlico and Laurel. And when I was working there, they were, you know, they would race pretty much year round, mm. you know, other than the little break in the summer to go to Timonium, which I worked there too it was either Pimlico or Laurel and always loved going to Pimlico um, because it was a little closer to where I lived, but also it just had this festive atmosphere about it because you knew that it was like, it was going to be big time because it was, you know, in that part of the year where the triple crown was coming up and it was just always fun to be at Pimlico. Um, Laurel of course was the backbone of the, of the racing calendar for the, for the state of Maryland. And you'd get so many talented horses shipping in from New York or New Jersey or Delaware or Pennsylvania. And, and, you know, that's where Graham motion got his start. He was based at Laurel and I can remember interviewing him there when I worked there and then look at him now. He's, he has had such a great career and I just, I love he and Anita. They're just the best people. So I'm really happy to see all the success he's had. He's been a wonderful representative of the horse racing industry in Maryland. I actually got the chance to interview him as well on one of the stakes days, which was great because to me, I mean, he's an incredible trainer. So try not to be uh, starstruck when I interview those great people in the industry, because of course you look up to them. And staying with the horse racing theme, you were the first ever female host of the Eclipse Awards. You started out hosting the 40, 41st, that's how you say it, Annual Eclipse Award in 2011, I believe. Now, this was an interesting one. It said 2011, and somewhere I found 2012. Oh, gosh, and don't ask me because I don't know which year it was. That sounds about right. But I know I've done done it, I think, six times now. Oh, I thought you did eight, but now I'm I'm sure you know better than I do. Maybe I'm missing, well... No, because I missed a, the year that I had my rotator cuff surgery. Um, that would have been two, 
two Januarys ago. So I missed that one and Nick Luck hosted. And then I missed last year because we were moving and I was in New Jersey helping move my mom into a facility. So it was, there was a lot going on this past year. So yeah. I, I have missed two of the last, I think, eight years. Yeah, we had the um, wonderful Brittany Erton, Gabby Godet, yeah. and Keisha Courtney hosting last yes, year. Yes, Charlie's triple Angels. Threat. Yes, Charlie's Angels, and they did an amazing job. I thought they were so funny and so clever, and I loved the way they broke it up, you know, with the three of them. I thought it really worked. I thought they did a brilliant job as well. And But you yeah. kind of became synonymous with the ceremony over the years. And I was actually watching one of the replays just earlier today. I think I was watching the 46th, which is 2017, just because that's the one I can find. I've watched a fair few of them, but just to, you know, get an idea of how you were presenting and everything you were doing. Well, I'm impressed at the amount of homework that you did for this podcast, Naomi. (laughs) That tells me a lot. That tells me you're going to go far because you are a preparer and that's what it takes. Trust me. Well, I so also that's very a- much enjoy looking up things. I'm a bit of a geek oh. in that way. Oh, that's good. Good good habit to have. So I was going to ask you, I mean, it looks like you're having a wonderful time. You're incredibly experienced and great at hosting the ceremony. But what was one of your favorite parts of the night or even in the days leading up to the Eclipse Awards? Well, I mean, for me... Um, since I wasn't working at Laurel or Pimlico anymore and ESPN's coverage of horse racing had kind of dried up, I wasn't seeing all my friends and the connections that I had made in the sport. I wasn't seeing them on a regular basis anymore. So getting to see them all, a lot of them in one room on one night for the Eclipse Awards and reconnect with a lot of people that I had come to know, for me, that was like the most fun of the whole thing. It was just like, even though I was working and I was backstage or on the stage or whatever, and I wasn't like I was out there sitting at a table eating dinner, I was still able to feel like I was connecting with so many friends. And then, you know, afterwards, you know, just having a drink with everybody's milling around. And that was the highlight for me of the entire you know, month or months of preparation look look leading up to it was knowing that I was going to see so many old friends and people that I really admired and wanted to reconnect with. And then, of course, if you're referring to 2017, I guess that's um, the American Pharaoh year. Was that right? Yep. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So then getting to celebrate the first Triple Crown in decades and just being able to cover that horse and ESPN sent me to the Breeders' Cup that year just to cover his, you know, run at the Classic for Sports Center, and being able to be a part of that and see him retire on a high note and close out his career that way, that is one of the highlights for me as a reporter, as a journalist, was getting to follow his story and then be there on Eclipse Award night for him to get his awards um, that was very meaningful to me. That, that was an especially memorable night. Um, and it brought back the memories of being at the Belmont stakes and seeing him win the triple crown, which brought tears to my eyes and just gave me chills. Um, it, that's something I'll never forget. Probably one of the most 
touching and meaningful assignments I've ever had and gotten to be a part of was um, American Pharaoh winning the Triple Crown and giving us the sport something it desperately hoped for and needed and wanted at that point. Yeah, it was definitely an incredible highlight for the horse racing industry indeed. I'm trying to quickly do the math because you did reference him you did reference him in the 2017 award ceremony. I do believe because Pharaoh retired in 2015, so that would have been the 2016 ceremony. Am I correct? This uh, is me the geek coming out again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're the mathematician and not me because I can't add but um but still yeah, yeah wonderful to hear about how much that meant to you you know honoring a oh, champion no. like him yes yes it's just it gives me chills still now today to think about being at that belmont stakes covering that race and having him do that and just the roar of the crowd and it was you would have thought that it was you know world war ii had just ended and people are out in the streets dancing and celebrating and cheering and that's the way it felt it was unbelievable. I will never forget that scene. And I'm so, so glad that I was able to be a part of it. Where were you watching the Belmont? Like, what was your vantage point? My vantage point was uh, in, I was in the production truck, in our television production truck, because that's where I thought I could get the best view of the race. And, uh, you know, soon as he crossed the wire, I ran out and it was just, it was just amazing. It was incredible. Well, you're not wrong on the vantage point there. You definitely get all angles when you're in the production truck. Yes. Yes. And it was parked right next to the, um, the clubhouse entrance there at Belmont, you know, by the first turn. So, uh, it was really close to the winner circle. Um, it was just amazing. Gosh, I wish I would have been there. I'm very jealous of everyone that experienced it. I remember watching it, but that's not the same. Well, maybe, hey, you know, we got a long way to go. And I'm sure, at least we hope, that there will be another Triple Crown winner soon. I mean, look, we had two in a row with Justify, right? Well, I've actually, I was very lucky because my first time at at Belmont was when Justify won the Triple Crown. How about that? How about that? So there you go. So you have experienced one. And that was pretty remarkable considering that Bob Baffert was able to win it again, I think. I mean, I don't think that'll be done again anytime soon. Pretty rare feat. No, it was incredible. I I just felt like the luckiest person in the world being there for such an event and that being my first time. I was hoping that that was some kind of a lucky omen. I'm not sure it is, but, you know, if it could be, that would be great. Do you think Triple Crown winners sort of come in clusters like that you know we had a 1973 secretary and then seattle slew 77 affirmed 78 is that you know is that a trend that we're seeing well you know we did have that cluster with the calumet horses um way back when decades before that and then it was sort of um dry spell and then we went another what 36 years um after uh affirmed before American Pharaoh came along. So, well, I mean, I think we already have had a cluster with American Pharaoh and Justify. So I would say, I would say, yeah, I mean, it seems, it seems that way, but now this year with the way everything has been turned over on its head and, and upside down, um, 
Can you even count it as a triple crown this year if it is to happen? I don't know. You know, it's not. The races are out of order. The The distances are, are changed, at least for the Belmont. And you don't have the five-week time frame. So if one horse does win the Belmont and then the Derby and then the Preakness, can we even call it the Triple Crown? I don't know. It's a very interesting subject. I actually spoke with um, grade one winning trainer Tom Morley last week for the podcast, and he was saying, well, it is one with an asterisk, but you don't hear me complaining if I win it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, Nobody that wins it is going to complain. Um, they'll take it any way they can get it. But I think in the history books, there will be an asterisk. And it, in my mind, my opinion is it, you can't call it the triple the triple crown if it is if it is completed that way i don't think because you don't have that five week spacing nor will you have the mile and a half distance of the belmont so you know it kind of throws a monkey wrench into that but hey no i'm with tom you know any way you can get it you're gonna take it and you're gonna be really happy and grateful yeah, nor do you have the sort of earliness of the race, the precociousness needed for, or the professionalism needed of a three-year-old to compete and win all three of those races earlier in the season than is currently the case. Right, exactly, right. Because now it's really going to be spread out over the summer and fall. So, um, and, you know, three-year-olds do mature a lot from the spring to the fall. We've all seen that happen. So, it is a little bit different ball game this year for the Triple Crown. But I'm glad we will at least have racing and have those races to look forward to. Absolutely. I do feel like you mentioned at the beginning of our chat that sports are so important to everyone in the United States. But I dare say the majority of people across the globe really use sports to lift up their spirits and as a great pastime. So I feel very lucky that we're able to start racing again and still have these great events being held this year, even though under slightly different circumstances. And as I introduced you as the first ever female host of the Eclipse Awards, do you, if you would have to give advice to people wanting to follow in your footsteps in terms of becoming a sportscaster, male or female, what kind of advice would you give them? And I kind of wanted to ask you first if you thought that it was trickier for a female to break into it, but I don't entirely feel that that's necessarily the case anymore. I agree, exactly. I think back in the 1970s, um, that was the case. 1970s and 80s, women probably had a hard time being taken seriously or being given the roles that they maybe um, deserved at the time. And I'm sure it was a lot tougher environment. Uh, You know, the men were not as accepting of women being on their broadcast crew or um, of covering their teams or, you know, players having female sideline reporters around. So at this point, I don't think we need to separate male and female. I think in order for anybody to be, a successful and respected journalist, um, you need to work hard, which I can tell you already do. You you need to really, you need to throw yourself into this, be become obsessed with 
whatever it is you're covering, whatever you've been assigned to. Um, ask a lot of questions. There are no stupid questions. At, at first, when I first started out, especially covering football and basketball, I would be afraid sometimes to ask a question because I thought, is this going to be a stupid question? You know, are they going to, are they going to just completely write me off if, if I ask this? But I found out that there really are no stupid questions because the more you ask, the more you're liable to dig up and uncover and a sense of curiosity is what makes for a good reporter. And also being very aware of your surroundings. Remember, we talked about being the eyes and ears for the viewers at home. Just be so utterly aware and don't take anything for granted. Don't don't think that because, you know, you see a horse sweating excessively that somebody else has already noticed it. You know, just Tell people what you're seeing and what you're hearing and be very aware and don't be afraid to ask about it and don't be afraid to be curious. And above all else, be respectable. You know, be obviously be truthful, verify your sources, verify things that you're told because you only have one chance to solidify a good reputation and it can be torn down so easily and so quickly. So it's better to be right than to be first. And in this age of social media and everybody posting stuff on Twitter and Instagram and all over the place, everybody kind of wants to be first, but it's more important to be right and to be respected. So, you know, I've gotten those little bits of advice from various people in the industry over the years. And so if I had to put them all together, that is what I would say, because I think having those qualities, as well as being a good writer, good command of the English language, good grammar, and good way, you know, nice way to present your information. Those are the most important things. And if you have those, the rest will take care of itself. You say there aren't any stupid or silly questions. Have you ever been in a position that you're wondering, or perhaps you were thinking, is this the right question to ask in terms of, is it a respectful question? Is it going to put someone in a t difficult spot to answer? Has there ever been uh, an experience oh, yeah. like that? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's been plenty of times where I've had to ask questions that I knew were going to be difficult. Um, or maybe that I knew that somebody didn't really want to answer. And, you know, it's your job as the reporter to not necessarily be this person's friend, but to be the person who gets the information out there for the viewers. So you're kind of the middleman and it it is a tough spot to be in sometimes, especially if you are friends with the person. So... Yeah, it's tough, you know, when you have to ask a player about an injury or when you have to ask a trainer about a horse that they just had to put down or, you know, you, you've had to ask um, somebody on a football team about being suspended or his mother just died or, you know, whatever the case may be, there are always going to be difficult topics that have to be covered and uh, you hate to have to be the one to do it. But then on the other hand, you have to think to yourself, but 
boy, I'm so blessed and so grateful to be the one to be in this position, to have this opportunity to do this, because there are thousands of other people that would love to have this job right now. So you have to kind of balance it out with that. Well, perhaps it's also good being so aware of asking those questions that you can perhaps do it in a respectful way that still allows them to feel slightly more comfortable than if it would have been a more aggressive question. And it's all about the approach too and how you word it. And and thankfully, you know, I was lucky enough to be a part of many workshops and seminars that ESPN put on. Um, very grateful to them because they really did try to give us all the tools and resources that we needed to become better at our craft. So I was able to attend a lot of workshops on interviewing and the best way to phrase questions and the best way to propose different topics and how to get the most out of the person that you're interviewing without making them uncomfortable. So I did have some good training in that area. And I'm very grateful to ESPN that they gave us those opportunities to learn from some really smart and talented people. Well, Janine, first of all, thank you so much for joining me here, but I'm going to have one final question. I know that you're not an active broadcaster anymore, but I know that you still like to go to the racetrack. So when will we see you again? Is it going to be Preakness, hopefully in October, if they do allow someone to attend? Well, you know, I don't, I don't know, to be honest. Um, it would be, it would be nice to be able to do that. It'd be nice to get back to Saratoga one of these years. Mm. Um, and I have friends who keep asking me to go to the Kentucky Derby just as a fan, a spectator, which I've never done, by the way. Um, so, yeah, the Preakness would be a lot of fun. And, you know, um, unfortunately, it's right smack in the middle of football season now. So I have to see how that balances out. Um, because, you know, my loyalties now are to the USF Bulls. <laughs> <laughs> my husband's cheering here in the background i don't know if you can hear him but yeah <laughs> no i'm afraid i couldn't hear him but i can't imagine him being very proud of you saying so yeah he said that was a good answer <laughs> <laughs> oh janine thank you so much for your time it, it really was a lot of fun speaking with you thank you naomi yeah it was fun it was fun and uh anytime and and good luck to you too with everything starting back up i hope it all goes smoothly and um i appreciate all your really thoughtful questions massive thanks to janine edwards for sharing her memories and expertise with me definitely feel like i can tick this one off my bucket list what a wonderful person she is Next week's show is still in development, but I am thinking of reaching out to some of my fellow Europeans to dissect this weekend's action from Newmarket as the 2,000 guineas and the 1,000 guineas will have finally been run. And of course, to give you all a general update on the current status of racing in Europe and how Royal Ascot will be held behind closed doors and what it's all been like. I have someone in mind and I'm very, very confident you guys will like this person. Let's hope I can secure them for a chat. 
as I highlighted before, the Stronach 5 is back this Friday, so don't miss out on the best bet in racing. Two races from Laurel, so I will help you out. Um, you can check out my ticket on Laurel Park's website on Friday. So don't go and check straight away, as I haven't made the ticket just yet. I'm not that fast. I have a life, or sort of, I'm trying to have one. I actually went to a restaurant for the first time in three months this week. It was quite incredible. I think that's about it for this week. Now, tot ziens maar weer, hè? That's Dutch for see you soon, eh? You can't say I don't teach you guys anything on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>